From WGVU, this is Focus West Michigan for Wednesday, February 21, 2024. I'm Joe Balecki. For our main feature today, Patrick Center looks into the governor's first ever statewide housing plan. Also, a look at the finalists of the Grand Rapids City Commission vacancy, a wood products manufacturer is bringing jobs to Nuego, and more state and West Michigan news. Focus West Michigan is brought to you by listeners like you. To support this show and everything we do, visit wgvunews.org and click the donate button. The list of candidates to fill a vacancy on the Grand Rapids City Commission is now down to three. WGVU's Phil Dawson reports on who they are. I am a firm believer that I don't know all the answers. I I need to work in a collaborative manner. That's businessman Bing Goey. Elementary school principal John Krajewski told the selection committee how he would operate as a commissioner. Sit down with a team of experts and make decisions that are ultimately good for everyone. And advocate for the environment Marshall Kilgore, who ran an unsuccessful campaign for a Kalamazoo City Commission seat in 2021. All of my work has been advocating for the underdog, trying to make sure folks feel seen, valued, and heard. Next month, the full City Commission will interview the three finalists and select one to fill the vacant third ward seat of Nathaniel Moody, who resigned effective December 31st. I'm Phil Dawson. A wood products manufacturer is adding jobs and a multi-million dollar operation in Nuego. As WGVU's Steve Morrison reports, the company is bringing work from out of state and overseas to Michigan. GM Wood Products makes components for wooden door frames and has about 140 employees in Michigan. The company is growing and plans to build a 25,000-square-foot facility next to its existing operations in Nuego, according to an announcement from The Right Place this week. It will also add 25 new jobs. The company's vice president announced they are bringing some manufacturing processes and new technology on site that they were previously sourcing from out-of-state and overseas. He says that will improve product control, production times, and costs. The Nuego County Economic Development Partnership and the Michigan Economic Development Corporation work together to ensure the company move those operations to Nuego rather than its other campus in Georgia. They helped coordinate state and local resources, including a 50% property tax abatement from the city of Nuego. In addition to the 25 new jobs, GM Wood Products will make more than $8.6 million in capital investment in the project. I'm Dee Morrison. Kent County commissioners recently passed two resolutions to secure funding for the preservation of nearly 234 acres of farmland in Sparta Township. WGVU's David Limbaugh explains what that land could be used for. Kent County's Purchase of Development Rights Program gives money to farmland owners who accept a permanent deed restriction to keep the property for agricultural use. Currently, the county is pursuing rights from three separate families who own land along Peach Ridge Avenue in Sparta Township. According to Kent County Agricultural Preservation, Specialist Matt Channing, the family's decision to work with the county to preserve their land will protect it and provide local food security for generations to come. The Linda Bradford Anderson Trust property is made up of four parcels totaling nearly 158 acres. It's used for growing wheat and has been in the Bradford family for over 100 years. The Bettis and Kingsbury family property totals 76 acres and is used for growing corn, soybean, and hay. This latest land acquisition was made possible through state and federal funds and donations. 
conditions. The Agricultural Preservation Board selected these farms due to their abundance of prime and unique soils, which will allow for a broad range of farming opportunities as well as their proximity to other protected parcels. This acquisition will grow the program by nearly 8%, giving Kent County about 3,000 acres total. I'm David Limbaugh. A group of activists is urging Michiganders who are concerned about Israel's war in Gaza to vote uncommitted in the state's Democratic presidential primary on February 27th. The campaign, called Listen to Michigan, says President Joe Biden is not representing the majority of Democrats. Polls of likely voters show most Democrats want a permanent ceasefire in Gaza. Abbas Alawiya is a spokesperson for the group. We have been doing everything we can to get President Biden's attention. Since it feels like he has not heard us yet, what we feel like we need to do is make sure to get his attention. And one opportunity to do that, we're going to vote uncommitted on February 27th. The Biden campaign says it's committed to engaging with Arab voters who are at the forefront of the uncommitted campaign. Still, the U.S. vetoed a draft United Nations Security Council resolution calling for an immediate ceasefire yesterday. Michigan is an important state in the presidential contest. Biden won it in 2020 by more than 150,000 votes. The Muskegon Police Department is offering a one-day citizens' public safety workshop. WGVU's David Limbaugh spoke with the department on how residents can get involved. We wanted to find a way to be able to get residents and citizens into the police department and fire department to learn more about it. Emily Morgenstern is the police community coordinator for the Muskegon Police Department. She says their new workshop is intended to provide citizens with a better understanding of the functions of law enforcement and the importance of public safety. We are going to be having presentations that cover use of force, de-escalation tactics, as well as presentation from our mental health team. Other topics will include traffic stop protocol and fire extinguishing. We will have residents actually go through different scenarios and really put them in the shoes of the officers and firefighters. Morgan Stern says the workshop is all about department transparency. It also aims to dispel misconceptions and increase positive communications between citizens and police. There's a lot of work that goes into public safety behind the scenes that a lot of people don't see. So we want to be able to just get people more knowledgeable about the profession. The workshop runs from 8 a.m. to 4 p.m. on March 8th at Muskegon City Hall. You must be at least 18 years old to participate and space is limited. You can sign up at muskegon-mi.gov. I'm David Limbaugh. The village of Sparta is getting creative to address the child care crisis facing West Michigan. WGVU's Dee Morrison reports on the unique approach that doubles the number of children served. A lot of families in Sparta have talked to us about the fact that they just can't even find anywhere for their kids to go so that they can go to work during the day. And if they can find places, often it's really expensive. Sparta village manager Jim Lauer explains the idea leaders came up with to help. They acquired a building from Kent County that used to be a daycare but needs renovation. We entered into a private-public partnership with a local child care provider where we're going to help them renovate the building and, and gave them a great lease rate to then basically double the amount of space they have for area kids. Sowing Seeds Child Care is already operating a center in Sparta for 84 children. With this partnership, they will serve 84 more, plus create 24 new jobs. Lauer says one of the biggest costs for providers is finding the right space and being able to afford necessary renovations. That's something that's within the village's wheelhouse. You know, we have a lot of buildings and that's something we do, so we figured that's where we could step in and try to help with the need, and, and that's what we're doing. He thinks this public-private partnership is a blueprint for other communities to explore as the demand for workers and child care continues to grow. I'm Dee Morrison. The Michigan Senate voted yesterday to get rid of a rulemaking committee within the State Department of Environment, Great Lakes, and Energy. Colin Jackson 
has more. Democratic Senator Jeremy Moss says the Environmental Rules Review Committee was just a bureaucratic step to slow down the rulemaking process. Removing this bureaucracy leads to better decisions being made quicker. And we heard testimony in our committee that this panel hasn't meaningfully changed the rulemaking process. But Republican Senator Roger Houck says repealing it could lead to overregulation. Allowing bureaucracy to run wild with regulations is a surefire way to drive businesses, jobs, and people out of our state. The bill package passed along party lines. It next heads to the governor. I'm Colin Jackson in Lansing. New research from Ontario shows how microplastics might be affecting important prey fish in the Great Lakes region. Most studies on microplastics expose fish to the pollution for a few days or a few weeks, but only a handful have looked at the effects of long-term plastic exposure over the course of a fish's entire life cycle. Kennedy Bucci is a researcher at the University of Toronto. She studied how microplastics affected fathead minnows from the time they were eggs all the way through to reproduction. My study suggests that microplastics exposure in fathead minnows might affect their ability to reproduce, which means in future generations there might be fewer fathead minnows swimming around, which would affect their predators. She found that exposure to certain microplastics led to hormone disruption, thinner eggshells, and more deformities in the next generation. Fathead minnows are common in the region and are especially tolerant to pollution. But, Bucci says her findings could mean consequences for the food chain. The minnows are prey for animals including walleye, perch, and largemouth bass, which are important sport fishing species for the Great Lakes. The redistricting process continues for several Detroit-area state house districts. The Michigan Independent Citizens Redistricting Commission is still taking public comment on several maps, while others are adding their own. The plaintiffs in the lawsuit that challenged the constitutionality of the maps, along with former state lawmakers and the Michigan Democratic Black Caucus, presented their own map yesterday. In Detroit yesterday, former state rep Sherry Gay Daniogo says changing the districts will allow for more black representation in the state legislature. Having 13 majority minority seats in play certainly gives the opportunity uh, for more candidates to run uh, and to be supported and to not you know, have to walk across several county lines uh, to campaign. Public comment on the maps will end this Friday. The redistricting commission will need to offer up a final map to the appeal court on March 1st. On the next Jazz Night in America, a giant of jazz piano who never really got his due, Elmo Hope. He is one of the great composers. There's one monk, there's one Duke Ellington. And there's one, Elmo. That's next time on Jazz Night in America. I'm Christian McBride. Sunday morning at 10 here on WGVU, NPR, and Jazz in West Michigan. In 2023, Governor Gretchen Whitmer commissioned the first-ever statewide housing plan addressing the state's housing crisis. In her 2024 State of the State address, the governor announced a plan for constructing or refurbishing 75,000 units over five years, committing $1.4 billion in the next budget. How could that money be spent in West Michigan? Well, WGVU's Patrick Center spoke with Eureka People. She's president of Housing Kent. I want to say, in general... Obviously, we're in a national as well as a local housing crisis, and it is a problem that's been decades in the making, so it is of epic proportions. 
And I don't think that most of the general public really realize that or realize this, the depth and the magnitude of the issues. And so even at the state level, I mean, there's like a 75,000 affordable housing unit gap that the statewide housing plan is seeking to address. And at a local level in Kent County, on the supply side alone, we have a 35,000 unit housing gap that we're trying to address in a five-year plan, as well as, you know, we have some pretty big numbers in terms of affordability, where there are about 30,000 households who struggle with affording where they live today. And we also have about 10,000 people who are struggling with homelessness. And all these numbers are increasing. And the governor's investment is quite welcome and very bold and strategic. So it's $1.4 billion. And that's going to be allocated, I believe it's just for this fiscal year, to build 10,000 homes to begin to chip away at the housing deficits that we're experiencing. And then this investment is specific to um, investments that are going directly to homeowners, and I believe to home builders, if I'm not mistaken, to be able to, again, to reduce the supply deficit that we're experiencing. And so from my perspective on the ground, I am super excited to see her administration really make these historic developments in order to address, again, these longstanding issues. And it can do nothing for us on the ground except bolster our enthusiasm and build momentum as we're really seeking to mobilize a community of stakeholders for everybody to get involved and everybody to do more. Um, because it really is going to take our collective community to really solve these problems at scale over time. How will this be an incentive for building more affordable housing? I am not necessarily a finance expert in housing, but I do know that as we're looking to move forward, affordable housing development has to be seen obviously not as a way to be the cash cow, if you will, or the biggest way to have the greatest return on your investment. So it's almost like we have to do partnerships with people like the revolving loan fund at Kent County is an example where developers or investors agree to a lower return on investment because they really just want to have community impact. And so there has to be more to the story than just the financial return on investment, but it's really the return on investment in terms of what type of community we want to see and what types of opportunities we want to create for the people that are in our community. Telling people all the time that because of the way the housing market is right now, the American dream is literally at risk or it is out of reach for many households. In Kent County, which is the only county that I could really confidently speak about data right now, we know that the average home sale value is $300,000. The income required to qualify for a home loan for that average home sale value is $107,000 annually. And so many young families, college graduates included, are coming out of school And I can't tell you how many parents I'm talking to that are telling me how much their college graduated children are struggling with trying to purchase their first home because they're just not available or accessible to them. And so if you think about that, it's placing that trajectory further and further away from them again to start their own pathway of creating intergenerational wealth building and economic security even for their own children. And many of them 
um, depending upon their background, their parents don't have the $20,000 that they can just give them as a down payment in order to bridge the gap. And that delay, you know, has some implications, I think, for our community as a whole, just in terms of the fabric of the family, education, healthcare, just a number of other things kind of reverberate from that ability to delay the American dream. And then there are other areas that we can talk about and break down when it comes to the renters and the level of economic insecurity that they're experiencing. On average, they pay more than $400, I think, more than what they could really afford. So they're not able to pay for basic needs, other essential items they can't save. And so they're almost in a cycle of economic poverty, many of them, because they can't ever break through to even get to a pathway of home ownership. And so there's just a lot that's happening. I think that Governor Whitmer's investment and again, a collective effort across our communities could really make a big difference. And the governor has been stressing the idea of retaining and attracting talent in the state. So this is something the business community also has skin in the game. Yeah, the business community definitely has skin in the game. And oftentimes when the business community thinks about it, they think about workforce housing. So they're thinking about their skilled labor force. And many of their insights are just spot on. I think even from Tech Week a few months ago, if I'm not mistaken, or sometime last year, they were talking about that. And it's how do you create workforce housing so that you could attract and retain the talent that we need in order to meet the growing demands for the future workforce, actually for the current and the future workforce, especially for the skilled labor jobs. Housing Kent's perspective, based on our data, would say you also need to think about your current workforce, because, again, many people working in our industries today, especially that skilled labor component, are living in economic distress because of housing insecurity. Again, if you're struggling to pay rent or struggling to make your mortgage payment, you're showing up to work performing less than optimally. So you're not getting the best out of your employees because their attention is divided, because they're stressed about how they're going to make ends meet. They're stressed about whether or not their car is going to break down and are they going to be able to put food on the table for their children? Or if they have an emergency, is their transportation going to be reliable? And so they're coming to work with a lot of psychological, mental burdens, if not duress, and that's got to be impacting their performance. And so even if we could alleviate, um, maybe it's a one-two punch, like a both and, you know, create this new workforce housing for skilled laborers coming in, but also alleviate them of the cost burden for the existing workforce, it could be a benefit to employers overall because you're just increasing the productivity of your workforce. Is there an outline for how the the $1.4 billion will be distributed? Are you in conversation with the state to know how this will be delivered? So to my understanding, how the $1.4 billion will be distributed, and again, I am not in direct conversation with the state, but I believe it's going to be distributed in accordance with the statewide housing plan which has a couple of layers of infrastructure. One is MISHTA in partnership with the statewide housing group. And then the second layer is a regional partnership, which a member of our team participated in. And there are 15 regions in Michigan, and they were a collaboration of multiple partners that then set local priorities 
for how the dollars could be allocated. Housing Kent would actually welcome the opportunity at the local level at Kent County to be able to partner with the state and how those resources could be distributed at a local level because we support a network of organizations called the Housing Stability Alliance, public-private sector network. But essentially, all of the housing providers participate in it. And so this group, the Housing Stability Alliance, really has probably the most expertise on where the local housing gaps are across the full continuum of housing from homelessness response all the way to supply and could really help direct those funds and investments in the best way by tapping into our local providers in a way that we've probably never done before because we've never had this opportunity before. So I think it'd be a great opportunity to partner with the governor's administration if we're afforded that. So you have a blueprint. You're ready to go right now. We are in the making of ready to go right now. We're in the process of creating our state of housing uh, report. And so we've got parts of the landscape map already completed, and we anticipate that we will have that report ready to go and for public consumption by the end of the second quarter. Is there capacity? Can builders bridge that gap fast enough? Unfortunately, I think my answer to that is no. Uh, But again, I think it's because contextually, again, this is a problem decades in the making, and it's not just what builders do. There have to be policies in place that remove the bottlenecks, uh, for example, to restricted densities that allow, again, more density, different types of housing. In that regard, there have to be other policies in place that are enacted that remove discriminatory barriers or just housing inequities that have been in place. And Governor Whitmer's plan, at least the statewide housing plan, really does address that very well. There also have to be other investments, again, private public sector partnerships, like it really does require an alignment of all of the players. And that I think is really the work. It's to what you were talking about earlier. It's to how do we stop working in silos and work as a system and stop playing our own individual sheet music and play one score together. And that I think is going to take a lot more effort. And until that happens, I think the speed of change will be slower than what we would like for it to be. But then once we all get on the same accord, I think we can see some exponential growth and changes that are aligned with the housing outcomes that we all desire. Eureka People, Housing Kent, thank you so much. Thank you so very much, Patrick. It was a wonderful interviewing with you. This has been Focus West Michigan from WGVU for February 21, 2024. I'm Joe Balecki. Our audio operations manager is Rick Beerling, and our news and public affairs director is Patrick Center. We'll be back with more news and events in West Michigan tomorrow, wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.